Please turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26, 1 through 30 will be our scripture reading for this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be some Bibles on the back table. There are two left, I'm being told. Uh, So, (laughs) two takers. Uh, There are two Bibles left on the back table. So if you don't have a Bible, feel free to go grab one from there. And let me say, if you don't own a Bible and uh, you would like one, you should feel free to not only take it for today, but write your name in it and take it home with you and keep it and read it and bring it back week after week as we study God's Word together. Before we read uh, from Matthew 26, let's pray together. Please pray with me. Our Father, we, we look to you now to speak to us, to teach us, to be our teacher. We want to learn from you. We want to hear from you. We want to be challenged by you and encouraged by you and corrected by you. We want to hear the gospel from you, Father. We pray that you would open our hearts and minds to hear it this morning as we hear your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 26, beginning with verse 1. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, Not during the feast lest there be an uproar among the people. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. When the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum of money and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of me, in memory of her. (laughs) Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them. And they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. 
Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. What is important to you? I hope you have a long list of things that are important to you. Uh, There are lots of things that are important in life. Uh, My wife is important to me. Uh, My boys are important to me as well. I'm learning slowly uh, to value things like rest and uh, the routine of life. Of course, what we say is important to us is not always what is really most important. You might say family is important to you, but it's really your work. Uh, You might say that your work is important to you, but it's really the money or the reputation that that work brings. The values and motives of our heart are pretty complicated sometimes. As we move through this passage this morning, I want you to keep asking yourself that question, though. What do I value? What is really important to me? We've, uh, we've been in Matthew for a year now, actually. I went and checked. It's a year tomorrow, October 19th. And uh, we're about to turn the page in the story. We're about to, to move to the last section of the Gospel of Matthew, and soon the, we're going to come to the climax of the story. And so far in Matthew, we've seen uh, Jesus as the son of Abraham, the son of David, the heir of all the promises. Uh, Jesus is the king who would come, comes to establish uh, the kingdom of God, the, the rule and the reign of God in the world. Jesus patiently in the Gospel of Matthew begins to distinguish God's kingdom from the kingdoms of this world. So he he starts out in the beginning teaching about righteousness in the Sermon on the Mount, and he teaches that the righteousness of the kingdom is is just of a different kind than the righteousness of the world. That the righteousness of the kingdom, it's not merely outward and directed toward man, but it's directed toward God and it begins in the heart. It's focused on things like mercy and forgiveness. We've seen Jesus live and teach the mission of the kingdom, that the mission is the proclamation and manifestation of the mercy of God that brings the renewal of all things. We've seen Jesus talk about the presence of the kingdom, that it's here, but it's hidden, that the kingdom is revealed to those who acknowledge Jesus and come like children with nothing in which to boast, but that the kingdom is hidden from those who reject Jesus and think they know better. We've seen Jesus exercise his authority as king, somewhat counterintuitively through service and the forgiveness of sins. We've seen lots of conflict uh, between the kingdom of Jesus and the political and religious rulers of Jesus' day. And all of that comes to a climax in the next three chapters. Jesus is very soon going to be arrested. He's going to go to the cross. He's going to suffer and die and rise from the dead. 
conquering sin and death and Satan, conquering not by causing his enemies to suffer, but conquering by taking suffering upon himself. Again, a little bit counterintuitive for the king. Well, this morning we get a few stories leading up to Jesus' arrest. Stories of different people preparing for Jesus' death in different ways. And as they prepare for Jesus' death, we see what they value coming out. So we're going to look at this passage. We're going to take it slightly out of order. We'll look at uh, the religious leaders valuing their position. We'll look at Judas valuing money. We'll look at Mary valuing Jesus. And then we'll look at Jesus valuing us. You can see that outline. It's in your bulletin. It's on the back of your bulletin. Valuing position, valuing money, valuing Jesus, and valuing us. First, let's look at valuing position. Look at verses 3 and 4. Verse 3 again says, Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. The religious elite plot together to put Jesus to death. And at this point, we're not told uh, why they do it. We're not told their motives. We're just told that they say, not during the feast. Uh, Why don't they want to do it during the feast? Well, they, they don't want an uproar among the people. They want to keep things quiet. But elsewhere in the Gospels, we're told that they're jealous of Jesus for his popularity. We're told that they are afraid that Jesus is going to stir up uh, riots and that the Romans will come in. In fact, in the Gospel of John, in a place possibly referring to the same moment, we're told, So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation." You notice the two two motives there. If they let Jesus go on, one, everyone will believe in him, and two, the Romans will come and take away their place and their nation. See, essentially, the the religious leaders liked their position. They liked their popularity among the people. They liked being called rabbi, Jesus tells us elsewhere. They liked places of honor, and they were jealous of Jesus' popularity. They also liked their place in Roman society, especially Caiaphas, the the high priest in that time, had learned how to kind of play politics in his day. He had a comfortable position in Jerusalem. And if Jesus stirred up a revolt, as everyone assumed the Messiah was going to do, Rome would come in and put an end to their Jewish way of life. And so Caiaphas, actually in the Gospel of John, suggests It is better that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Caiaphas, the high priest, says that they should put Jesus to death to save the nation. He really has no idea what he's saying. There are a lot of ironies here that that shouldn't be missed, right? I mean, one is Caiaphas is worried that Rome is going to take away their place and take away their nation, which really proves that the Jewish people didn't have a place or a nation at that time. Rome was already in charge. At any moment, they could take away the pretense of freedom. There was a pretense of a Jewish nation, but make no mistake, right, they were under Roman rule. Now, how often, how often do we, who the Bible says, uh, by nature are slaves to sin, 
worry and complain that if we follow Jesus, he might take away our freedom. We're so afraid of losing our autonomy, but the Bible teaches that we are slaves. Sin has its deadly grip on our throats. Jesus says whoever sins is a slave to sin. And yet Jesus actually comes to bring real freedom. He came to to free us from sin, the greater tyrant than Rome, ultimately to restore God's kingdom in the world, to restore God's rule over and against every tyrannical rule on earth. And so Jesus' coming is a threat to Rome and to everyone who relies on Rome. His coming is a threat in, in one sense to every political rule and everyone who relies on political power for position and privilege because Jesus came to bring real freedom a freedom that no government can take away, a freedom that really does away with position and privilege the way we often seek it. Well, their love of position above the people, their love of position politically politically moved them to hate Jesus. Jesus was a threat. I wonder if Jesus is a threat to you, if he's a threat to your way of life. Jesus has come to radically upend life as we know it. He comes and says that we need more than an outward show to be religious, that we should not use our position to to serve ourselves, but we should use it to serve others. Jesus says that our motives are often too self-seeking, that our righteousness is too shallow. Other people might think that we're great, uh, but Jesus knows our hearts. It's easy to fool the world around us, right? People mostly know about us what we want them to know. But John, in the Gospel of John, says of Jesus that he entrusted himself to no man because he knew what was in man. See, Jesus knows that out of our hearts comes all kinds of wickedness. Is is that a threat? I mean, does it make you uncomfortable to hear Jesus call people out for their heart or for their outward morality or for their misuse of power? Do you wonder if he's calling you out for those same things? What is your response when Jesus calls you out? I mean, if you value where you are in life, your response is likely to figure out a way to to silence Jesus. You know, the religious leaders sought to do that by having Jesus put to death, just not during the feasts, right? They don't want to cause a riot because that too would jeopardize their position. We tend to silence Jesus in different ways, however. We simply ignore the scriptures or we explain it away with science or philosophy. Or we say, well, Jesus is just a good teacher. He had some good things to say. But he went a little too far when he talked about the new kingdom or a new way of life and serving one another. The kind of freedom that Jesus offers we often don't want to have anything to do with because we realize it's going to be painful, because it means freedom from ourselves, freedom from our compulsions, and yet freedom to enjoy God, freedom to love our neighbor. Now, I so often kick back against this kind of freedom because I want my will. I want my pleasure. I want my way. Yet Jesus comes to bring us something bigger. The religious elite prepared for Jesus' death by plotting showing their love of their position. But it gets worse before it gets better because we want to look at Judas and how he valued money. Um, The next story actually is the story of Mary. Mary comes to anoint Jesus with the perfume in verses 6 through 13. The disciples complain that it's wasteful, that it could have been sold, the money given to the poor. But Judas especially had an interest in this 
Uh, because John tells us that Judas had charge of the money bag. He was the, the church treasurer, as it were, and uh, he would dip into the plate upon occasion. Matthew doesn't tell us that, but, he, but he immediately after the anointing, we have verses 14 through 16, which say, Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray Jesus. Notice a couple of things there. I mean, the first is Judas takes the initiative, right? He, it, we're not told that they came to him earlier. We're not told that they were looking for someone to betray him. Judas, G, Judas takes the initiative to betray Jesus. And notice what he asks in verse 15. He says, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. The religious elite valued their position. What does Judas value? He values money. I'm not sure if that's better or worse, uh, but what is so bad is, is what it means about Judas' estimation of Jesus. I mean, think about what happens next. Uh, the first day of the feast, Jesus has apparently already made all the arrangements. When the time comes, they're all reclining at the table. And while they're there, Jesus begins to say this in verse 21. He says, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. This, of course, brings sorrow to the disciples. They're sad, they're hurt, maybe they're angry at whoever among them might do such a thing. And uh, in our translation of verse 22 actually makes it look like the disciples are being humble, right? Verse 22 says, uh, they say, is it I, Lord? Uh, But the, the way the question is asked actually assumes a negative answer. So really what they're saying is, surely not me, Lord. And then it's Jesus' answer to that that gets me in verse 23. They're sorrowful, and and Jesus answers, verse 23, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. And Jesus isn't really being specific by that. He's just saying that someone at the table, someone that he's eating with, someone he is enjoying table fellowship with, To eat with someone is a sign of friendship, it's a sign of peace, it's a sign of camaraderie. David in Psalm 41 says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Judas is a friend of Jesus. Judas is a close friend of Jesus. He's one of the twelve. He enjoyed close fellowship with Jesus. And yet Judas betrays him for 30 pieces of silver. Jesus then pronounces woe on his betrayer, right? He says, this is really one of the mysteries of life captured in this one verse in verse 24. Uh, Jesus says, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. What he's saying is it has to happen this way, right? God has planned it out this way. God's word will not fail. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. See, God is sovereign over the betrayal, over the arrest, over the crucifixion of Jesus. This is the way it has to happen. But those who play a role are responsible for their actions. Judas will be held accountable. He willingly and freely betrayed Jesus, even though it was a part of the plan of the Father. And Jesus affirms both the sovereignty of God on the one hand and the responsibility of man on the other. And Judas finally addresses Jesus himself, similarly to the others. He says, surely not me, Rabbi. And Jesus responds, however, in the affirmative, you have said so. We have a similar kind of 
idiom, right? When we want to affirm something that someone has said indirectly, we say, well, you said it, not me, right? That's kind of what Jesus is saying here. He's affirming Judas's words. He's saying, you have said so. Well, what did Judas value? Better, maybe, what didn't Judas value? He didn't value nearness to Jesus. He didn't value time with Jesus. He he didn't value his friendship with Jesus, all of which he had as he ate and drank with Jesus around the table. What did Judas value? Well, sadly, from the picture we have, he valued money. He sold his rabbi for 30 pieces of silver. Now, there may be more to the story, right? Maybe Judas uh, was frustrated that Jesus was taking so long to overthrow Rome. That's what some people think. Or maybe Judas was disillusioned, right, when he realized that Jesus wasn't going to overthrow Rome. That's a possibility as well. There could have been lots of things going on in Judas's heart at the moment. But in the end, whatever the reason was, Judas, whatever the reason Judas might have devalued Jesus, he loved worldly riches more than Jesus. Now, none of us, thankfully, has the opportunity that Judas had, but we often, too, put financial considerations above him, right? We put our career before Jesus. Often, uh, more money in our job means longer hours. It means less time with our family. It means private devotions get squeezed out. The thing that was meant to be a means of serving Jesus, your career, uh, becomes a means of supplanting him. Uh, In the last chapter, chapter 25, Jesus taught that serving his people who are in need is one of the ways that we serve him. Of course, that too often has a financial component to it. Are we willing to to give up uh, the life that we're accustomed to often in order to serve our brothers and sisters around us who are in need? Sometimes we value money indirectly, right? We, We value the things that money can buy. We value clothes and computers and smartphones and new stuff. Well, what about you? Are, are there ways that you value money more than Jesus? Do you put financial considerations before faithfulness and love and devotion to your Savior? Well, sandwiched between these two stories of plotting and betrayal, we have a different story. The religious elite valued their position, Judas valued his money, but Mary was different. Right? Mary values Jesus. Jesus is in Bethany in verse 6, a town just outside of Jerusalem. He's at the house, he is at the house of Simon the leper. Uh, Simon maybe was someone that Jesus had miraculously cured. And a woman comes, and uh, the Gospel of John tells us that the woman is Mary. And she takes an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she pours it on Jesus' head. And the disciples are indignant. Right? What a waste, they respond Matthew tells us the perfume was very expensive. Uh, Judas, in the Gospel of John, says it could have been sold for 300 denarii. Now, 300 denarii was a working man's year's pay, right? So it's about $20,000, which means Mary just poured $20,000 on Jesus' head. You can see why Judas might have been especially upset. And Jesus, aware of the disdain, rebukes the disciples. You see it in verses 10 and 11. Jesus says, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. 
Now, there are a couple things to note here. I mean, Jesus is, is not downplaying the importance of caring for the poor. He says, you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. What he's really doing is he emphasizes in multiple places elsewhere that true religion is things like uh, caring for those in need, or as, as uh, James says, true religion is caring for widows and orphans in their distress. But Jesus' point here is simply that there is a time and place for everything. Jesus is worthy of being honored, and now is a particularly appropriate time to honor Jesus in this way. Which brings us to the next thing to note. Okay, now is a time to honor Jesus in this way. Why? Verse 12 tells us, Jesus says, In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Jesus is going to the cross to die for sins. He's going to bear our punishment, to suffer God's wrath. He would die and be buried. And Mary, uh, Jesus says, is anointing his body for burial. Now, one wonders whether Mary understood this or not. I mean, did she get that she was preparing Jesus' body for burial? Maybe Mary understood when no one else did. When the other disciples are squabbling over their place in the kingdom, maybe Mary is busy anointing Jesus' body for his burial, knowing that he's going to the cross. Maybe the anointing is symbolic in other ways. I mean, she understood Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. So her act becomes a declaration of her faith in Jesus as the Messiah, as the anointed one. Look finally at verse 13 here, right? She, uh, we're told, uh, Truly I say to you, Jesus says, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Jesus honors this woman's love. She pours out herself for Jesus, and Jesus honors her for it. I think if we really want to understand, though, what's going on here, we have to see the, the larger context even of Mary's relationship to Jesus. Now, sometimes you read through the Gospels and it's hard to figure out which Mary is which. There are so many of them. But, but this much we know about Mary, Martha's sister. Mary, in Luke chapter 10, she's, we see her sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to his teaching. Right? She, she values time with Jesus. She values being with him. In stark contrast to Judas, right, who dips his bread in the dish with Jesus and yet betrays him for 30 pieces of silver. In John 11, we see Mary falling at Jesus' feet to mourn the death of her brother, confessing that, that if Jesus were there, her brother would not have died. She believes in Jesus' resurrection power. And here we see Mary anointing Jesus, right, proclaiming his Messiahship and preparing his body for burial. Mary values Jesus, she loves him, she wants to learn from him, she believes in him. I wonder if you value Jesus like Mary. Uh, do you want to spend time with him? Do you want to sit at his feet and learn from him? Do you know and really believe his power over death? Do you value him more than anything in life? Do you want to honor him with everything you have and everything you are, including your most valuable possessions, including your time and your money? I have to confess that Mary's faith is a challenge to me. I don't value Jesus as Mary did. It's not my heart's desire to sit at Jesus' feet. I'm too busy running around doing life. I'm trying to be a good husband and father and pastor and friend. Too busy to stop and just spend time at Jesus' feet and learn from him and believe in him and look to him. 
When trouble happens, uh, my instinct is not to run to Jesus who has power over death, but to live in self-reliance and then to freak out when I realize I don't have the resources in myself to take care of life. I'm afraid to pour out my life for Jesus, lest I regret it, lest he not satisfy, as I know he should, as he promises to. See, I know I should value Jesus the way Mary does, but I'm not there yet. Thankfully, the heart of Christianity is not about my valuing Jesus, but it's about Jesus valuing us. The religious leaders prepared for Jesus' death by plotting to arrest him. Judas prepares for Jesus' death by betraying him. Mary prepares for Jesus' death by anointing his body for burial. And that brings us to Jesus preparing for Jesus' death. And before we look at the the last few verses that we haven't looked at yet, we should really see that Jesus has been preparing for his death the whole time because Jesus is the one in control. Verse 2, Jesus predicts his upcoming crucifixion. He says, after two days, the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up and crucified. And compare that to the religious leaders, right? They, they want to wait until after the feast, which would be at least nine days later. When is Jesus actually put to death? Well, two days later, just like Jesus said, in the middle of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, because Jesus is the one in control. It seems to be Mary's anointing of Jesus and his affirmation of that that pushes Judas over the edge to go out and betray Jesus. Verse 17, we see Jesus preparing the Passover meal ahead of time in secret, uh, possibly so he couldn't be arrested prematurely. This is going to happen on Jesus' timetable, right? No one else's. In fact, Jesus even says in that point, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. Jesus is in control here. He knows when his time is ready. I don't think there he simply means the time to eat the Passover. Everybody knew it was the time to eat the Passover. Jesus means his time is at hand. Jesus tells his disciples, one of you will betray me. And it's likely Jesus' prediction that one would betray him and telling Judas that it was him that pushes the timetable even further. Judas realizes that Jesus knows and he must act quickly. And so he goes out and he betrays him that very night. As much as other people are acting in this story, in Jesus' betrayal, in his arrest, in his crucifixion, Jesus is the primary actor. Jesus is in no way a helpless victim. Which brings us to verse 26. We've already seen uh, Jesus is eating the Passover with his disciples. He told them he's going to be betrayed. They are saddened and they are shocked. But that's not the end. In verse 26, in the middle of the meal, Jesus takes bread, he blesses it, he breaks it, and he passes it around. He says, take, eat, this is my body. And then he takes a cup, and when he had given thanks, he passes it around. He says, drink of it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. With these words about the blood of the covenant, Jesus is echoing Exodus 24. We read it earlier. In Exodus 24, Israel has come out of Egypt. They've received the law on Mount Sinai. They promised to obey God and do everything that he said. Moses sacrifices burnt offerings and peace offerings. He takes the blood of that and he throws it on the people saying, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you. 
And by echoing the covenant that God made with Moses, Jesus is saying that he is establishing a new covenant. Whereas the basis of God's relationship with the nation of Israel was in one sense the law and their obedience together with the blood of the covenant, the basis of this new covenant would be Jesus' body and blood. Jesus obeys the Father perfectly in our place. Jesus suffered the Father's wrath for sin perfectly in our place. And back in Exodus 24, what was the goal of that covenant? Well, in Exodus, we see Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and seven of the elders. They go up on Mount Sinai. They see God and they ate and they drank. The goal of the covenant was fellowship with God. It was, it was intimacy. It was friendship. And yet... It was just Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the 70. The common Israelite dared not touch the mountain lest they die. They were still held far off. Well, the goal is the same in the New Covenant, right? Jesus right here, right now in this story is eating and drinking with his disciples. They see God and they eat and they drink with him. And the sacramental meal that Jesus is instituting is a sign and a foretaste of the intimacy that we have with God. But all of Jesus' people are invited to his table. No one is held off, right? All who believe in him, all who follow him are invited to feast with him, to dine with him, to fellowship with him. And yet at the same time, this meal is just a sign and a foretaste. Jesus, it says this in verse 29, says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. See, Jesus says a day is coming when we will eat and drink with Jesus in the kingdom, when we will see him face to face. And every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, it's just a a foretaste, right? It's just the appetizer of that day when we dwell in God's presence, when we eat and drink in the kingdom, in the wedding feast of the Lamb. What does all this say about Jesus? Jesus is actively preparing for his death. He's teaching that his death is, is... offering up of himself a sacrifice for our forgiveness. He's promising a day when, because we have been forgiven, we will eat and drink with him in the kingdom, in the renewed world, in the new heaven, in the new earth. Why is Jesus doing all of this? Well, on the one hand, he's doing it for his Father. This is his Father's will. We find that out in the garden. Jesus wants to obey his Father and glorify his Father. But on the other hand, Jesus is doing this for us. Paul says uh, of Jesus in Philippians chapter 2 that he is looking out for us when he humbled himself and became a man and went to the cross and died. Jesus came into the world and suffered and died because he valued us. That's not meant to give us an ego trip, and it, it, it really can't, because it's not that we are intrinsically valuable so Jesus valued us. But we are valuable because Jesus valued us. The point is Jesus valued us at the cost of his life. We could say the same of the Father, right? The scripture tells us that that God so loved fallen sinful humanity that he gave his only son. Peter tells us that we were ransomed out of our old life, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, the lamb without blemish or spot. The Father valued us at the cost of His Son. The the Son valued us at the cost of His own life. We were ransomed with the precious blood of Jesus. If Christianity is founded on our valuing Jesus, we're all doomed. 
Some days we long to come into the holy place, right? Some days we long to read and to pray with Jesus, to sit at his feet. Some days we long simply to be with him. Some days we value quality time with Jesus, and some days we don't. But Christianity, thankfully, is not founded on us. It's founded on him. He valued us. He bled for us. He poured out his blood of the new covenant for us for the forgiveness of our sins. That's the heart of the gospel. And if we want to value Jesus like Mary did, that's the gospel that we need to get into our hearts. I mean, do you get how much God values you? If you don't, look to the cross. Whatever your mistakes and whatever your failures, however much you've messed up in life, right? However little others might think of you, whether you are loved by men or hated, whether you're a success in the world's eyes or a failure, whether you're rich or poor or educated or uneducated or young or old or male or female or black or white, right? God's estimate of you is seen in the cross. There, Jesus bled for us. There, Jesus purchased us. He placed value on us by giving his life for us. Let that sink into your heart. Ask the Father to impress that upon your soul. And Jesus will become precious to you. He will become more beautiful, more worthy, more valuable to you than life and breath itself. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you uh, for your plan to send your Son into the world to bear our sin. We thank you that you were willing to give your only begotten Son for us. We thank you, Jesus, that you were willing to come into the world to bear sin, to to take on uh, human skin and to take on human sin, to take on our uh, guilt to suffer and die in our place, to take on our shame, to die naked on the cross. Jesus, we thank you that you valued us that much. We pray that as we meditate on those things that you would become more and more precious in our eyes, that we would value you the way we ought above all things in life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.